Amen. Thank you, choir. I think the Lord's name has been lifted high in this place today. What are mountains? They crumble before the Lord. It's a beautiful song. Thank you. We were out of town this past week, and uh, I missed the, the budget presentation. I hear it went really well. Uh, as you know, today is the, you may not know, today is the last day of our fiscal year. The fiscal year at uh, Woodmont runs from April to March, and I promise I did not know that at the time, or I wasn't thinking about it when I planned today's sermon on generosity. It just so it happened to coincide, but if you feel so moved as to be generous today, extra generous, I say that after the offering uh, was passed, then uh, please do as you feel led to do. Um, but we uh, are so glad to be back. I really did miss you guys. Last week when I was leaving, uh, walking out of, the, of the, the, the church, someone was, was shaking my hand. They said, I've never been so excited as I've been these last few days about coming to church on Sundays in my whole life. And uh, I said, you know, I thought about it. I said, me either, honestly. I'm just so excited every Sunday to gather with you here at Woodmont. I just um, am so blessed by you all, and I hope that you are blessed today. This morning, we're going to look at another passage out of Deuteronomy, and I, I, I told you this is part of this, this series, Brave Hearts, about uh, having courage to do uh, what God wants us to do, and we're looking at this series where Moses, who's the greatest prophet that ever lived, who's standing on the, the, the plains of Moab with two million Israelites looking across the Jordan River into the promised land. And he's giving them his farewell speech. These are the, the last words that Moses will ever say before he dies. He's, his end is, is soon. He's, he's destined to die in Moab and not cross the Jordan with the Israelites into the promised land. And I know that some of you are struggling with these Old Testament readings that we've been doing in our Through the Bible series this year. And someone, uh, I told you that I loved De Deuteronomy last week. I, I love this book. It's one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. And, and someone in an honest moment as they were leaving last week told me, look, I know you say you love Deuteronomy, but I'm, I really struggle with it. I know we're well into Joshua now, but uh, still referring back to, to Deuteronomy. And I said, yeah, you know, the, the middle part of Deuteronomy is really tough because it's a bunch of laws and it's a bunch of obscure-sounding, ritualistic kinds of regulations that Moses was giving to the Israelites. And I said, but I love the, the first four chapters where Moses is recounting the history of God's people and how they got there. And I love the last three or four chapters where Moses is giving these last words that he'll ever say in this, this powerful way. But really, the truth is, I love the middle of Deuteronomy too. I do. I love the laws and the regulations as well as the beginning and the end because these teachings are more than mere do's and don'ts, right? The regulations in Deuteronomy aren't just about, you know, doing the right thing so that you can, you know, go to heaven so that you can be good enough. That's not the point of these laws and regulations. You know, when we read the Bible, what we're reading is this collection of, of poems, of songs, of stories, right, of narrative, of history even, of genealogies. All of Scripture reveals to us God's ways. This is why we gave a Bible, right, for, for Helen uh, Young over here. Because the Bible reveals to us the ways that God wants us to live into. And again, it's, it's not so that we can be good enough to go to heaven, that's not the point of these regulations and these laws in Deuteronomy. It's not so we can take our nation back or, or 
anything like that. It's, it's not so that we can raise our kids even in ways that they won't act so crazy. That's not why God gives us these ways and these revelation to us. He gives us these rev revelations so that we can more fully accomplish our God-given purpose for our lives. So that we can live into the ways that God has for us to live, to play our part in his mission for the world. It's so we can more fully participate in what God is doing around us in the world. You know, ever since the fall of creation, God's been working to bring it all back unto himself, to redeem this fallen world. And ever since Genesis 12, the way that he's chosen to do that is through a people, starting with Abraham and then the Israelites, and now on this side of the cross, the church are the chosen people to be the conduit of God's blessing into the world. And this is my point here, okay? That ever since the, the Old Testament even, where you have God's people who are set apart to do this, when we live in God's revealed ways, when we live like the set apart, consecrated people of God and fulfill our part in his mission to the world, when we do that kind of life, that what God is showing us in the, that way is that it not only brings glory to God, and accomplishes his mission in the world, but it also results in our good. When we live God's ways, it accomplishes God's glory and our good at the same time, both of those things. So we know that Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the way, it is the way to death. We have that, Melanie, up there, Proverbs 16. 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's a way is death. What that means is that we think we know which way we want to go. We think this way is what I see is a good way to live, a good job, or a good marriage, or whatever. This is the way that I want to go, but in the end, our way leads to death. God's way leads to life and flourishing and thriving in the way that he designed us to live. That's the point. So let's read today's passage through that lens. This is God's ways revealed to us so that we can flourish and bring glory to him, both of those dual purposes at the same time. Let's read Deuteronomy 15. We're going to read 1 through 11. I'll break it up for us. Deuteronomy 15 in my Bible, the heading says, it's about the sabbatical year. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. You know, the idea of Sabbath is crucial to living into God's ways, isn't it? Sabbath is, is part of God's greatest commandment for us as his people to observe, to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And Sabbath, what Sabbath does for us is it brings balance to our lives. I was talking to Sarah and Ryan about the importance of rest when you have a baby, right? God desires for us, commands us to rest appropriately and at the right times. Silence is, Sabbath is a balance of worship and work and play, and rest. 
How many of you today feel like your life lacks balance? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I know mine does. I feel like I could use more balance in my life. Sabbath is God's answer to life's imbalance. So a sabbatical year is a part of bringing balance to not only our lives, but to the social order as well. So on the seventh day of creation, we know that God rested, right? This means that we too ought to set aside a time of rest in our calendars, in our lives, not only in our work, but in our homes. We should have places and times of rest, even in our churches. Sometimes I look at the weekly and I think, we have no rest here at this church, right? We've got to be intentional about putting rest into all of our lives and our calendars, Sabbath. The idea of Sabbath even extended to the land. God commanded that every seven years, even the land itself should rest. Look at Exodus 23, it'll be on the screen. Verses 10 through 11, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, a Sabbath for the land. Not only so the land could rest, but also so that the poor of your people may eat. You're just going to let it go, and whatever it grows and produces, poor people will come in and they'll be able to have that for free. And what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. God cares about the beast too and provides for them. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. You know, modern agronomists have long known that when you let land rest, it replenishes nutrients, right? You rotate crops, you let land rest because it's best practice for productivity. Science is often catching up to what God has already proclaimed, isn't it? This is all part of the plan for God to provide rest and balance, not just productivity, but we know that rest and balance increases productivity too, doesn't it? I read an article uh, last week, it was directed towards ministers, but it, it referred to a secular study about sleep and that, that a lot of corporate business types are, are foregoing sleep in order to be more productive. <laughs> Is that more productive? No, of course not. It's science is proving that these, these busy people who are staying up later to get more work done and getting up earlier are in fact decreasing their productivity because during the day, they're not rested. They have no balance in their lives, which is not God's way of flourishing. So during this seventh year, it says here that God's people were to grant release from debts. You know that Financial Peace University is starting here tomorrow night. I encourage you to be here. And, you know, Financial Peace is largely about how to live free of debt, how to be in the release of debt. The word release here, it, it literally means letting go. It means letting go of the bondage, the shackles of debt. I have a lot of friends who still are in their mid-30s and paying off student loans and, and it becomes a, a kind of a crushing weight and, and a, a shackle that holds them down. This is what God's saying here is it's a release of those debts during that seventh year. And it's a tough word to translate, this letting go. It's not obvious here in the text if, if these debts were supposed to be suspended for one year or completely eliminated, but most scholars think that since the land was to lie fallow, was to rest for that seventh year, then probably it means that God meant for all debts to be completely wiped out because people would have no way to pay back the debts they owe because they weren't making an income 
off the land during that seventh year. Wow. Could you imagine if people tried this today? What if our government decided we're going to cancel all debts every seven years? People would riot, right? Wall Street, the politicians would be up in arms over something like that. Why? Well, because obviously it's not fair, right? It's not fair. I mean, I, I work hard for what I have, right? If I loan something to someone, I expect it to be paid back in full and with interest. That's how our world works. But it's not how our God works, necessarily. But if we start letting debts go, then it'll all go to chaos. People will be getting away with unfair things. Well, we'll come back to this idea of unfairness in a minute. Let's keep going for now. And notice here at verse 3, it says that only Israelites, only God's people, us, the church. Remember we said that every time you read Israel in the Old Testament, you can read that as the church now. It says that only God's people are held to this standard. We, 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 we are supposed to forgive each other's debts. But we know that foreigners who come through, they're not abiding by God's laws the other six years. So we're not going to hold them to that same kind of standard. You can exact a debt from them. So let's keep reading verses 4 through 6. But there will be no poor among you. What? I thought Jesus said you will always have the poor with you. Why does Moses say here there will be no poor among you? How can anyone say that? We'll come back to that in a minute. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's how. There won't be any poor among you because God's going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination for an inheritance to possess if, <laughs> that's a little word, if, tricky, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised. His promises are true. You can trust them. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. You see, the, the picture that Moses is painting for the Israelites as they prepare to go into the promised land is an ideal society as God would have it. God's ideal society has no poor people in it. That's his point. He's showing them how it can be a society so blessed by God that they are actually able to take care of anyone who's lacking, of anyone who's in need, of anyone who finds themselves in, impoverished. And he says that this kind of society will be able to lend to all other nations, but they won't need to borrow from anyone, which will, in a sense, make them rule over all the other nations. Again, God's ways lead to flourishing and thriving, right? That's part of, of God's ways, living into those ways. This sounds great, right? Could you imagine how our land, the U.S., would flourish if we didn't have a $19 trillion national debt right now? <laughs> Might really do wonders for us. I don't think our leaders in our country took Financial Peace University. but It's not automatic, though, is it? This flourishing is not automatic. There's that little word in verse 5, if only. You will strictly obey my commandment and my voice. Only obey the voice of the Lord. Listen to all that he's commanded you. That's hard for us to listen, isn't it? 
I'm not a great listener. Marriage has shown me that. <laughs> Something I have to be very intentional about and work at, the practice of listening. My wife's a great listener. Something that I, I struggle with. Listening to the voice of God daily. What this is talking about is a spiritual life. All throughout the Old Testament, there's an inward reality that leads to an external reality. Does that make sense? Our spiritual lives lead to the kind of outward life. Our inner life leads to what we do with our outward lives. It all comes from within. What's your prayer life like? That's what this is talking about. Having an inner spiritual life where you're in tune with the Lord God. You know, prayer is not just talking to God. Prayer is not just asking for things. Prayer is a connection with the Holy Spirit. I heard one person define prayer as when your head moves into your heart. That is prayer. Isn't that beautiful? What's your prayer life like these days? How often is your head in your heart and you commune with the Holy Spirit? How are you at following the voice of the Lord which commands you throughout your day what to do, where to go, what to say? What God's voice is telling his people to do here in this text is really a commandment to be generous. It's about generosity. That's part of God's ways. He's really saying, let there be no poor among you. Not necessarily the, the prophecy that there will be no poor, but let there be no poor among you. As long as you follow my ways, my economic laws that I've given you in this book, there need not be any poor among you. I'm telling you how to live. And if you live that way, you'll experience the abundance of blessing that I provide for you. The, the grapes that take two guys to hold on one pole. The, the promised land that I will give you that overflows with milk and honey. If only you will obey my voice and my commands. It depends greatly on the people's willingness to be generous like their God is generous and giving all the time. Look at verses 7 and 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Hard hearts. That's really the issue here. In our series on, on brave hearts, the first week we talked about how melted hearts, fearful hearts can, can lead to missing out on God's promises and God's promised land. Then the, the next week we talked about how forgetful hearts lead to idolatry. We forget our first love and we follow things of this world. Forgetful hearts. Today we see how hard hearts prevent us from flourishing both as individuals and as a community. Hard hearts. You see here that the, the text doesn't say that it matters how the person became poor. If, if they blew all their money, if they squandered it, then you don't have to give them anything. No, it doesn't say that. It says if they should become poor implied for any reason. You know, I, used, I grew up at First Baptist Nashville uh, downtown on 7th and Broad, and going to church was going to be an encounter with a homeless person every time we went. And I, I, I developed kind of a hard heart towards homeless people. Because I saw them so regularly. Those of you who work downtown, maybe you find yourself in this boat. I, I, I remember thinking, well, that person probably blew all their money. 
or they spin it on alcohol or something, so, you know, kind of would, would walk by them with a hard heart. You know, two things really changed my, my mind on that, convicted me, really, the Holy Spirit uh, convicted me of, of my attitude towards the homeless, but I took a social work class at Belmont University with Julie Hunt, who, who explained to us the statistics of homelessness and how people come to be homeless and the mental illness issues that are involved and how alcohol numbs uh, schizophrenics, uh, you know, how alcohol can, can be an easy medication for many of these people with mental illnesses. And then also when I was visiting the Nashville Rescue Mission in college, I heard someone say that it only takes two bad choices for any of us, for any of our parents, for any of our children to end up on the streets. Two bad choices. Take out a bad loan. Decide not to get that operation. Decline the supplemental insurance. Spend all your savings. Max out your credit cards. Go through a, a bad divorce. Make a bad decision at, at work and, and become unemployed and lose your job. Any of one of us could do this at any time. None of us are above it, right? The kind of hard-hearted, judgmental attitude that I had in college towards homeless people is the same kind of attitude that God is warning against here. Don't be hard-hearted towards anyone. But of course, some Israelites would read this commandment about the sabbatical year and say, oh, okay, all right, fine. Well, I'll just be sure not to lend any money before the seventh year. Boom, problem solved. That may be fulfilling the letter of the law, but that's not the spirit behind it, right? The spirit of the law is about being generous. I know so many people, even Christians, who will lie and cheat and steal at work because, well, it's just my work. It's just how I provide you know, for my family. It's secular. No, all of life is sacred for us as Christians. We are to be above reproach in all that we do. I have good friends that are really, I consider, you know, godly people that cheat on their taxes. They're like, oh yeah, you can totally say that. I'm like, what? That's a lie. You can't do that, you know? We're called to be above reproach. The spirit of the law is what matters more than the letter of the law. Does that make sense? The spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Look at verse 9. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. That's the spirit of the law. And you say, oh, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And you, your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely no matter when it is. And your heart shall not be grudging. Again, it's about your heart. It shall not be hard and should not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in all that you undertake. What God is saying here is that our attitudes matter. Our hearts matter. The way we give to people cheerfully or grudgingly matters in order to be blessed. What God's saying is that he wants us to have genuine compassion to be moved for those who are in hard circumstances, for those who find themselves in poverty, to be brokenhearted for the things that break God's heart. If all God's people had this heart attitude, then there would be no poor people. There would be no needy among us. But God knew the reality of the situation, didn't he? Look at verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. That's the reality. He just said in verse 4, there'll be no poor among you if you do this. 
But now in verse 11, he says, there's always going to be poor people. That's the reality of the situation. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand, wide to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. There doesn't need to be any poor people, but because your hearts are so hard, because you give so grudgingly, because you can be so stingy, then there will be poor among you. Just as Jesus says in the New Testament, so I'm commanding you to hold all that you have with an open hand. You may hear this and say, it's so unfair though. I, I worked for what I have. It's mine. I shouldn't have to share it or, or give it away. But remember that God's commandments are always for our good and for his glory. Do you believe that? Do you trust that God's commandments are really for our good? Open-handed living leads to flourishing. It's true. Tight-fisted living, closed uh, fists and hard hearts leads to destruction and decay. I promise. Science has shown that the number one factor in determining happiness, secular science has shown this, is gratitude. Being great, grateful for what you have. Happy people are grateful. And you know what's a close second? Generous. Think about it. The generous people that you know, are they happy? Yes. God commands us to be generous because it leads to the kind of free life where you don't care about holding on to what's yours. You know what the word for uh, miser you know the word miser? What's, what's the word that comes from miser? Misery. Miserable. <laughs> That's what it means to be a miser. It's no fun. This last week when we were at the beach with my sweet little three-year-old nieces, you know, my daughter had a sharing lesson the whole week, you know, with her toys that she brought. And my, my wife was explaining to her, it's more fun, May, to, to let them play with your stuff instead of holding on to it and being so worried and preoccupied about what's yours. It's no fun. Just let them play with it and enjoy it. It's so much better way to live is what the truth is. We're trying to explain that to our children because our inherent fallen sinful nature is to hold on to what's ours and be misers and be miserable. God says, don't do that. Let it go and live the way I commanded you to. It's so much more fun. You can be free from desire. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, nothing shall I want. I don't need anything. The Lord is my portion. He's all that I need. This is why Paul says in Philippians 4 that I've learned the secret of being content with a lot or with a little. I don't need anything. I can live open-handed and say, it's all yours, God. Take whatever, whenever. If you're still caught up with this idea of fairness, I encourage you to examine the gospel itself. The good news of Jesus Christ is completely unfair. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. What did we deserve? Romans 6, 23 tells us what we deserved. Wages are what you deserve. Wages are what you get paid. The wages of sins is death, right? But the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wages are what you deserve. All of our works, they've all earned nothing but death. All of our generosity, it's all earned death. But thanks be to God who lavished his abundant riches of grace on us when we least deserved it. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, 
not as a result of works so that no one can boast. It's totally unfair. So just to wrap up, four key points that I see here. First, believe that God's ways are best, that they are meant for our good and for his glory together. Do you believe that? Trust that God's ways are best. Our ways inevitably lead to death, I promise. Second, there need not be poor among us. If the church can demonstrate radical generosity, open-handed living to the world and how we take care of the needy among us and around us, then we would change the world. We will bring the kingdom of God here as it is in heaven. How do you feel about the poor today? Is your heart hard towards people who are poor? God commands us both for our good and his glory to be soft-hearted, tender-hearted, broken-hearted for the poor people around us. Our attitudes towards those less fortunate than us matter greatly to God. Third, listen to his voice and obey. What's your prayer life like? When was the last time you heard the voice of God leading you where to go? We can't live out radical generosity until we cultivate a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Holy Spirit who guides us, God who directs us and moves us into his ways daily. Finally, hold all that you have with an open hand. Your wealth, your possessions, even your family. That's hard. To hold all of it with an open hand. If you hold anything too tightly, you've made an idol of it. That's what we talked about last week. Don't be a miserable miser, living in misery. The abundant life is lived with open hands. Let's pray. Lord God, I look at my three-year-old, uh, my five-year-old daughter and my three-year-old nieces, and I'm convicted of my own attitude, how I tend to hold on to what's mine and focus on what's mine. God, help me to remember today, it's all yours. Help us all to remember that you have blessed us beyond what we could ever have deserved or asked or imagined. Help us to live radical, gener generous lives. Lives that hold on to all that we have with open hands. Where we allow others to borrow. Where we give freely and cheerfully. Where we enjoy being a blessing to others and giving away what you have blessed us with for a time. God, I pray that as we conclude this fiscal year at Woodmont, that you would bless us richly, that you would move our hearts to give generously to the work of this church. Help us to, to continue to minister to the, the poor around us, God. I thank you for, for the food pantry ministry we have here. I thank you for Celebrate Recovery that brings in homeless people. I thank you for Room in the Inn. I thank you for all the ministries that, that end up, that we give money to in this community, to the National Rescue Mission, to Salome Health Foundation, to all these groups that work with poor people around our city. God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Move us to compassion. Stir us up to live open-handedly. We love you. We pray this in your high and your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.